Dorms. Like I see the paint. Like I've never seen dorms painted like that. Oh, we're allowed to paint them, so I painted that. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm allowed to paint them. I've never been in a dorm that allowed you to paint any. Well, that's yeah. yeah. One, of the, one of the newer things they have. It's like you can choose from the their colors. You can't just paint it rainbow. <laughs> but, oh, approved yeah. colors. Okay. But that's awesome. Yeah, no, it looks. I was like, I was confused. I'm like, are these the dorms? And the only way I could tell, um, I think it's the desk. The desk type yeah. is very Air Force dormsy looking. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Other than that, I'd be like, oh, you're in your own apartment or something. It feels like it, yeah. Well, that's good. But you said they're about to start letting people out. Hopefully. Um, it's, I'm at the top of the list, probably for WSA. So they're trying to move people out. Also, with being paralegal, you know, it's very easy to get involved in witnessing things. So. Right. So uh, it's funny you bring that up because that's how I was able to get Gilbert out of the dorms as well. Um, it's just too many people that he was running into in the dorms yeah. that, you know, prosecuting and they show up in our reports. And then there's the same people that. So it's just difficult for and. It's not to say that we're more, you know, special than any other career field. That's not it. But it definitely could prevent us from doing our job. And if he can't, if he's got conflict, you know, conflicted out of a case, we don't have that many paralegals to say, okay, then this other one's the one who's going to do that court martial. Like, he can't afford to do that. Right. <laughs> so is that kind of the same thing that they're doing for you? Um, ours is, that's something I think, I did bring it up before and my leadership was on board, but they're just, they were waiting for the dorms to get to high capacity. And now that they're at that high capacity, I think if I bring it up again, you know, it'll be a possibility, but also they're just starting to move people out. Even A1Cs with one year at time on station, it's just, there's a lot of people coming in. Okay. So that's it's nice. not like renovation or anything like that for the dorms? Or? No. Okay. No, we these are the new dorms. There are some older ones which aren't quite as nice, but um these are still from about 2013, which in relative terms is quite new. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, okay, so you know, just kind of moving into the reason why we're here and to why we're doing this podcast. So um I'm not sure who it was, but someone shared your story or the story that was made. Uh, by the North Dakota or Minot Air Force Base public affairs team um, about, you know, you, essentially your story, your background, and uh, the situation that you were having dealing with as far as citizenship after you joined the Air Force. Um, and definitely found it super interesting. There was a lot, I think there was a lot of buzz, and I'm not sure if you're in that page, in the Paralegal Inspiration page on Facebook. Yes, sir. You are? Okay. So that's where he was. And then I was tagged. I believe it was by Master Sergeant Puma who said, you got to do a podcast on this. And I agreed. I was like, yeah, this would be a great, you know, uh, definitely a great conversation and something uh, interesting to have, even just to talk about you, to talk about your story, which I, I find very interesting as well. And something that I believe that, you know, the paralegals, you could benefit from getting to know your story. and your situation as far as getting you know citizenship once you join the air force but um 
yeah, that's, you know, that's essentially why we're here. We're just going to talk about, about you. So if you don't mind, you just want to give us a quick, uh, before we go in depth with your story, just a quick um, background and, and, and introduction as to who you are. Yes, sir. So I'm A1C Jessica Ramsey. Um, I was born in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa in the city of Durban, which is on the East Coast. Um, I lived in South Africa until I was about 11. And then when I was 11, my family immigrated to Australia. And we lived on the West Coast, lived there for about six years. And then when I was 16, we moved to the States. Finished off high school, I lived in Connecticut. And then after high school, I decided to join and I eventually became a paralegal and got stationed at my house after all that. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's a lot of happenings, you know what I mean? Like an immediate, and especially from a very early age to have that much movement. Um, talk a lot, talk a little bit about your time and your time in South Africa. What do you remember from that experience? Um, and I guess the ultimate decision to, to move to Australia and how did Australia become the, the destination at the time? Yes, sir. So my whole family is from South Africa. All of my extended family lived there. That's where we are. Um, so that's why I guess I was born there. Um, grew up speaking the language. I speak Afrikaans and Zulu, which is part of the province where I live, KwaZulu-Natal. Um, but South Africa, it's beautiful. It's where my family are. It's my culture. But it's extremely dangerous. And it's kind of just going on a downward trend and has been for many, many years. People live in fear. There's a lot of crime, corruption, and poverty. And essentially, my parents saw that for my sister and I, I have an older sister, there wasn't much opportunity to get jobs and even to get into university when we grew up. It, it's almost a different country to what they grew up in. So. We moved to Australia to essentially have a safer and better life with more opportunities for our future. And Australia was the chosen destination because it's one of the more common places that South Africans moved to. And my dad was lucky enough to be able to relocate his company to Australia because they have a lot of um, clients. Okay. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And so what do you remember from your time in South Africa? I mean, I remember it all. I mean, all my family there, so a lot of family events and all that. Um, I remember going to school there. We have a very different school system. I almost think that out of the three countries I've led, South Africa has the hardest and strictest school system. Um, I think the values are different, definitely more traditional family values, like dad goes to work and mom stays at home it's more common for women to stay home in south africa than in other, any other country i've lived otherwise there's just things that are normal there that are not normal anywhere else like instead of squirrels in your backyard there's monkeys um and then when you go on vacation you'd go to game reserves and you'd drive your car and see elephants and lions and like completely normal which when i say that out loud you know it's crazy that that was my life for this most of my years. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. And that's kind of like what I was going as far as, you know, the differences between uh, the three different countries that you've lived in. 
um, you know, from what you remember in South Africa and then in Australia and the United States. And that's, it's very interesting that, yeah, that's so different as far as the environment and the type of uh, things that you're exposed to um, in South Africa that, that here in the United States, we wouldn't even dream of. Like, we'll be freaking out if we see like a lion or a monkey in the backyard. You know what I mean? In the backyard. Like, yeah, we'll see a rabbit or a squirrel. But <laughs> if I see a lion and I'm driving, uh, yeah, I don't know what, what I'd do. Interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, and then you said you went. You you mentioned West Western Australia, and yes, sir. so I, that's the only thing I know over there is what Melbourne and uh, and Sydney. Anything close to those two places? So Perth is on the it's on the west coast, and Melbourne and Sydney and the biggest cities in Australia are on the east coast. But in my opinion, the west coast is the best coast. Um, it's more unspoiled. There's there is less population, but the beaches are the whitest sand I've ever seen in my life. It's very beautiful. The nature is just unspoiled, and there's a lot of new developments. It's quite a new city, so everything is very clean and well organized. It's kind of this. It's an amazing place to live, and I'm extremely fortunate to have lived. Good. And do you know um, then the reason why they jumped from Australia to the United States? So we never thought that we would ever leave Australia. We immigrated to Australia. We became Australian citizens. And I did grades 5 to 10 in Australia. And then there was an economic recession. So almost most of um, half of the country, which West Australia encompasses pretty much half of the country, they lost their jobs because of a mining recession. A lot of industry in Australia is connected to mining. And because of that, a lot of people lost jobs. My dad lost his job, so we moved to the States, essentially. Okay, I see. You are, you, so your voice is cutting up a little bit. Yes. Sir. I see it's kind of like on and off somewhat. We'll see if it. If it gets better, I'm not sure what we can do. Um, but okay, all right. So we've covered so the time in in uh, South Africa, eleven years around. Um, moved to Australia, Western Australia. Um, there for about five years, so grades five to ten, and um and then to the United States. So the first place that you went to then was Connecticut? Yes, sir. Okay, and the only place where you said you joined from Connecticut? I did join from Connecticut, but my parents since I've moved to New Hampshire. Okay. But I finished high school in Connecticut, and then when I left for basic training, I was still living there. Okay. And where in Connecticut? Um, it's a town called Glastonbury. It's quite a, a large town in terms of area, but it's outside of Hartford. Uh, pretty suburban, pretty, I don't know, average American town. So it was kind of a out of a movie to move to this like perfect suburban American town. So my sister and I were absolutely in our element, even just driving past like what is an American school was such a novelty to us. It's so weird like that it's so normal for people here, but you just have this different 
appreciation when you don't grow up with it. Okay. All right. Interesting. So I, and, and just plugging this in, but I've been to uh, Hartford, Connecticut. I have some family in uh, New London, Connecticut as well. Oh, interesting. Um, but I know Hartford is, um, I mean, I would not going to say it's quite South Africa, but um, kind of wild over it. It can be. It can be. <laughs> um, they just happen to have a lot of um, a lot of Puerto Ricans there at Hartford. Absolutely. In the outskirts, you didn't quite have to go to Hartford or anything like that. No, but a lot of the the school events or bigger things like that, we would go into Hartford. And there are a lot of people from Hartford that went to my school. Actually learned to speak spanish because of the huge puerto rican population in hartford right so that's on my language list now <laughs> okay so you, you speak a little bit of spanish i speak it pretty well i have my seal of biliteracy so oh. i'm pretty pretty confident i listen to the music all the time i oh. love it i get down on yeah like bad bunny and stuff like i love bad bunny <laughs> i went to this concert in bridgeport oh you did <laughs> in connecticut yep Nice. Yeah, I was trying to get tickets for uh, for the concerts <laughs> coming up here soon. But yeah, I'm a I'm a Bad Bunny fan. Like Six hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty expensive. Um, see what I can do. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, there you go. Okay, so Connecticut, and then I'm assuming you spend there. So junior and senior year, or sophomore, junior and and senior. It was junior and senior year, sir. So. Okay. And then, so you said that shortly after high school is when you decide, decided to join the military? Yes, sir. So as I was going through the process of receiving all my colleges back, I, I got into a lot of the schools I wanted to, but the financial aid was just not where it was at. And I just knew that I wanted to do something different. And I had a neighbor in Connecticut. He's a retired lieutenant general which is like, what are the chances? And he would always tell my dad and I stories about being a B-52 pilot and all of his amazing adventures. And I just, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to live this kind of lifestyle. It fits a lot of my interests that I've had all my life. I've always been interested in national security, intelligence, foreign policy, language, and having this kind of adventurous lifestyle where you get to travel and meet people from all over the world, as well as contribute to such a mission where you're essentially in charge of global security. It's everything I want to do. And every day I see the planes fly. I'm like, this is, I'm exactly where I want to be. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really awesome. And you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to do another plug here. Um, so my, I have a cousin who's, 16 or 17 and she's about to go, go through her last year in high school and i i promote the air force so i'm just probably just like that lieutenant general who's constantly promoting the air force and um all the advantages that it has and the benefits that it has and how you can you know you can come from anywhere in the country sometimes even anywhere in the world and at right after high school and really become and do whatever you want because the opportunities are out there for education, for career, for experiences, for everything. Um, it climbed up to progress to be, you know, I mean, at the top of, of 
of of the of, of the um a career progression in the air force so there, there's really no there are really no limits um, and i don't think there's any other i believe that the air force is the greatest organization in the world i truly believe that i'm not just saying it because i'm a part of the air force i'm not just saying it i truly believe that the united states air force is the greatest organization in the world when it comes to all of the different um programs that and, and the things that it values right like you talk about integrity diversity um, inclusion, everything. It's just so modern, so forward-thinking. Uh, opportunities for everyone. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. It really, you know, it's just awesome to put on the uniform and go to work every day. Um, yes, because yes. knowing that you belong to an organization like that. So, um, so I, I'm glad that, you know, you were able to get the advice from that Lieutenant General um, and introduce you to, uh, to the Air Force. So, so, okay, so then I'm guessing that that experience was throughout your time in high school as far as the information that you were getting about the Air Force and the opportunities that the Air Force would provide. Um, did you see a recruiter? Did you take the ASVAB while you were in high school? Like, how did that all come about? It was actually quite the opposite. I was fully intending on going to school, like going to college. Um, I wanted to go to a very prestigious school and I did so many college applications and spent so much of my senior year stressing over essays and all that. And then pretty much two months before I was going to graduate, I just realized I didn't have the money for college and it was just, it wasn't going to make me happy. It wasn't allowing me to be in charge of my life. Um, I didn't want to end up with a degree and no experience and have $180,000 in debts. And I don't know, the Air Force, it allows you to take charge of your life. And if you fight for the opportunities that it gives you, you can seriously, as you said, like there are no limits. So it's it's exactly what I wanted to do. It's almost like I can do what I want to do after college right now. So that's that was my main motivation. But I didn't have this realization until quite close to when I was going to graduate. And I'd, I'd honestly never even considered the military before then, which is why it was it was quite a shock to my family. And my mom was like, what females don't join the military? Because I come from a very different culture in South Africa. And that's just not something that females usually do. I mean, I I don't even know if females do join the military. And so seen it. So it was just a very big culture shock for my family. But my dad brought me up always camping and I don't know doing outdoorsy things and all that so he was super into it my mom was just very concerned I don't know she didn't know why I wanted to join and then I explained it and she understood my reasoning but all of that I saw a recruiter about three days before my graduation day and I almost joined the army because um, I was told I could become a U.S. citizen at basic training which mm -hmm. is one of the huge motivations for my citizenship mission to improve the process um, for other military members. But I also didn't think I could join because I didn't think foreign nationals could join. I thought you have to be a citizen. Um, recruiters then clarified that you didn't have to be, but there was just a, a sort of job list because you can't essentially have a secret clearance for that. Okay. Yeah. So explain a little bit of that process before we jump into, you know, basically shipping out to basic training and everything like that um talk about so you reach out to the recruiter what information do they provide you as far as being 
you know, be, not being a U.S. citizen? So they said that it was possible to join. I mean, they were, they were very pushy, you know, as recruiters are. They, they always want to recruit people. So they're telling me all the benefits and all of that. And then I, I expressed that I had language skills and I really wanted to be a linguist. And they said, oh, you know, you unfortunately can't do that at this point. You know, you can retrain and all that later, but there's a shorter list. And then I got the list and I don't know, there's not many jobs that were to my liking. And paralegal was definitely my first choice on that list, which I'm so lucky to have this job because I know they don't recruit paralegals all the time. It's, I know it's since changed or it is changing now, but... I just so happened to go to basic training the week when they needed them, which is a miracle in my mind. But there's a different process for people that are foreign nationals. Um, you have to sit down with an investigator and essentially tell them your whole life story, give them all your previous passports and birth certificates and all that. They ask you why you went to certain countries, um, if you had ever been to a country and they'd asked you for information on the US and all that good stuff. And I had to make a list of every foreign contact that I am in contact with, which I explained before my whole family live abroad was quite a list. <laughs> so that, that was a little exciting, but you know, I understand that they have to take security measures and they then interviewed my neighbors about me and my boyfriend at the time, my teachers and my parents. So they, it's a very thorough investigation even before you ship out. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, okay. Yeah, no, that's all really interesting. And I want to circle back to what you said, uh, paralegal. So did you have a guaranteed paralegal job before you joined basic training? I didn't. So there are a couple of jobs that you could reserve as a foreign national, but most people go in on open, open contracts, whether that's open general, or open admin. I went in on open general with the hope that they would have paralegals and they did okay so um again that was a complete miracle yeah all right that's awesome so so then okay so you then you take that leap of faith then i guess and you do join or decide to join open general yes sir um i'm not sure if there's anything else as far as the you know not being a u.s citizen pro, uh, process before joining was there anything else to it was that essentially so you you talk to the investigators they clear up you know get all your contacts get all the information and then you're approved essentially to join um it's quite an extended process because of that investigative period and because i have quite a relatively simple case you know i'm not married or have children i have crazy relatives that i know of doing weird things abroad I think that I was able to go to basic training soon as a foreign national compared to other people. But my process still took about seven months. I graduated high school in July and I only shipped out in January. Okay. And you have been working That's on the process since you graduated high school, immediately since you had graduated high school? Yes, sir. So. Okay. And I think if I did have a more complicated situation, debt or anything like that, you know, there would have been kickbacks and vacations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Understandable. Okay. So then you go to basic and how was that like? What was basic training? It was, it 
was very good. I loved basic training. Um, it was a lot of fun, even though we got yelled at a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. But we were affected by COVID in our last week. So unfortunately, mm. we didn't have the graduation ceremonies. But I'm thankful for having the rest of my basic training normal. Right. So grateful oh. for the experience. <laughs> so you graduated in March 2020? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, no, interesting. That the COVID thing hits and graduation. Yeah. So graduation, were your parents not able to, to go to your graduation? Okay. No, they had tickets and they were supposed to fly out a few days after. And then we were we were all given our phones and we weren't really sure why we were given our phones because we didn't really know why what COVID was. It had kind of happened since we've joined and, you know, you're disconnected from the outside world. And then we had to be just phone call, but like, so there's this thing called COVID and <laughs> apparently you can't come to the basic training. Right. It was good times. <laughs> yeah, no, that's unfortunate. Just, you know, basic training and hopefully you get to see. I'm not sure if you had seen previously the graduations or maybe you had been doing uh, your practice. Yeah. We did all the practice, which was good. You know, I like drill and all that. So I'm glad we had the full experience. We just didn't get to perform. Perform at the end. OK, yeah. gotcha. All right. And then so I imagine that the time that you get to, to pick a job is about what week four or something like that four or five around that sounds then. about right yes, and so. then uh <clears throat> so at that then you, you you put the list of what did you remember writing other than paralegal on your list of jobs that you wanted to do or that were available for you yes sir i had uh paralegal i think contracting was my next choice um and i think finance and then a couple of other ones I can't really remember after. Okay. And then, so did you have your interview right then and there? Do you remember who your interview was, who interviewed you from the paralegal person? I do not. Okay. I know it was a master sergeant. Um, I was intimidated by the, the extra stripe at the top. Okay. <laughs> but I, I don't remember who interviewed me. Um, I remember we talked about assignments and Know what it was going to be like and you know the expectations of the career field model okay. and then we found out i think in week six if we were selected or not because we were able to check our tech school locations and i saw i was going to maxwell so i assumed i was going to be a paralegal <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah no that's awesome and then okay so you get paralegal and that's what you wanted so like yeah. you said you know everything lined up perfectly um and I also mentioned about so paralegal. So I already said, I'm not going to go as far to say that paralegal is the best job in the Air Force. <laughs> um, I can't say that. Um, I could, but I'm not. Uh, I can say that the Air Force is the best organization, but I won't because I respect, you know, I respect every job and everyone's contributions to the mission. Um, all the jobs are important. Um, so so I, I, I can't go there. But... But I will say that, um, you know, being a paralegal is just so much that is trusted, you know, like, like even at a, so we just have a, a, an airman who 19 years old, just, just graduated PAC and already so much is already entrusted to him to perform, to think, to help us out, you know, like criti use critical thinking skills, think outside the box um, at such an early 
you know, time in the Air Force without really understanding all the lingo, without really understanding all the different things. Um, but, you know, the Air Force and the parallel career field definitely prepares individuals for, like, if you do just do four years and then you try to go out and find a job, like, you really have no issues finding a job after four years of the parallel experience. And yeah. it's a high paying, you know, I didn't think that it was going to be like this, but it's currently a high paying job on the outside. And it's a demanding job on the outside as well. Um, so it is, it is great that you get to make the contributions as far as serving your country, but in a job that is also, you know, translates really well um, with the civilian, uh, in the civilian world. Absolutely. Um, well, definitely good, you know, that's like a double, yeah, <laughs> it's just awesome all around. Absolutely. Uh, so then you get to Maxwell, go to the Jack School. What were your what were your first impressions of, of going there? Um, my first impressions of the Jack School was that it was very prestigious and that I knew when we walked in that there were gonna be high expectations for us and that definitely held true. Um I enjoyed my time there. I definitely learned a lot. A lot of information through a fire hose. I don't even think I understood how much information I learned until I got to my next base. And then I was like, well, this is all, we learned all this and the amount of time we were there. Um, I had one of the new curriculums. I was the second class to go through the new curriculum. So there was, it took a while um, to get some of the things done, but you know, we were patient. You understand it's brand new. So it was very interesting to go through that. Awesome. And okay, so yeah, the Jack School. You're right. Yeah, that was my first impression too. That it was a prestigious school. Like, whoa. And I'm I'm a cross dress. So I cross trained. I was public affairs, and and my previous tech school was the building was pretty nice, and it seemed pretty prestigious as well. The public affairs building, but yeah, the Jack School is something else. It's a whole different thing. Um. And then, like you said, new curriculum, which is about four weeks. Is it three to four weeks? No, no, I'm sorry. Three to four months. About that, I got to Maxwell in March, and I believe I graduated in July. Okay. Well, I think we, we probably started classes in April, like the first week. So it's about... Okay, about three, four months. Yeah. Probably four. That's way longer. Me, it was six weeks. That's it. I heard so. I don't, I don't know how yeah. Six weeks. It seemed like a lot, even just for Right. You know, no, it is a lot. <clears throat> but yeah, it was pretty, it, it was short and sweet. Now I'm sure there's just a lot, a, a lot to go over. And, and it, and it, it shows like I got, so I, right, Erman Gilbert, who went through the new curriculum, is in my office and I can see the difference. There's another, there's a reservice paralegal at the 442nd. She comes over to our office to do her tour. And she seems to remember all these things from PAC and she's very self-sufficient as far as we don't have to, you know, obviously I have to train and everything like that, but they're still functional from what they learn in PAC. Absolutely. And with the new airmen as well. So, I mean, you can tell that, that they're preparing them really well to, to, um, to be functional off the bat as soon as you get to your first duty station. So then did you, so was it in basic training then where you were able to also pick your bases or the bases that you wanted to go to? We did that in Maxwell. Um, 
I think you probably could have updated your dream sheets at basic training, but we kind of did it at Maxwell. And then I found out that I had orders to Maxwell. And then there was an, another airman, Airman Leg. <laughs> he had orders to Minot, and he did not want to go to Minot. And I didn't really want to stay at Maxwell um, because I didn't want to be an AETC. I wanted to see another part of the Air Force that had more of an operational mission. So I swapped orders with him to come to Minot, and I'm not kidding. Everybody thought I was crazy. And I'm here almost a year later, and I love it here, even when it's minus 30 outside, because Minot's mission, we have the missile wing and the bomb wing, and it's absolutely crazy the amount of operations and impact that Minot has on the world security, essentially. Like, the world is leaning on Minot's shoulders quite a lot of the time. So, okay, so we have to talk about this because this is really impressive. You know what I mean? It's impressive. Not impressive that you like Minot, but that a draw of Minot to you is the mission. Um, that doesn't happen very often. You know what I mean? Not on a young airman. Um, so that that is super cool. And, and it's the same thing that happens to us with Whiteman Air Force Base. People just focus on the location right. of the base. And there's another element to being in the Air Force more than just the location, but making that the impact that you're making at the current base and, and, and the mission that you're supporting, that is an unbelievable mission with an unbelievable yeah. with unbelievable aircraft. Um, like yeah. that should be a draw as well. Um, so I'm, I'm impressed and I'm proud of the fact that you, you know, that's one thing that that you look to um, as part of your contribution and, and, and your uh, assignment preference. Yes, I think that, I mean, no one goes to Minot because of the location. It's extremely isolated. It's half hours away from a town that is not even really a big town, let alone a city. But it's just, you have such a contribution to national and global security. It's phenomenal and i wanted to be in the quote real air force i know every i know that every base has an impulsive mission i do know that but if i'd stayed at maxwell i feel like i would leave maxwell because i had tech school there and i'd go to pcc there and potentially other trainings there and i don't know I, I got an opportunity to see a part of the country that very few people get to go to north dakota is the most sparsely populated i think continental state and it's it's honestly such an experience here. Like it is weird at times and you're like, this is just such an experience. You know, I have so many memories from this place, but just on the other side of that, like in the ops, I've got to fly simulators for B-52s. With, I've had B-52 tours, Huey tours. I've been, been asked to the missile sites and it's just so cool. I mean, who gets to do that in their lives? Right. Um, so happy that I've had these opportunities because that's what I'm passionate about. That is like the coolest thing to me. Yeah. No, that's really awesome. That's awesome and cool to see. And I'm glad that we're highlighting that here so that other people can kind of take note <laughs> <laughs> and say, you know, you can follow the mission, you can, you know, uh, and make that part of the research as well when, when considering what basis to go to. Part of the research should be what mission do they have there? Because right. um, some missions are just unbelievable. Um, so I, I swapped assignments when I was in tech school as well, but uh, it wasn't, it, it, 
it was i had ram i, I was given ramstein airbase that that was the base that i my initial orders that i was given uh, but i swapped for MacDill <laughs> for space in them so it was it wasn't you know both location and the mission at MacDill wasn't bad yes sir all right so my not um but did you do you remember putting down specifically my not on your assignment list or what what bases did did do you remember putting down I had all West Coast bases, uh, mainly in Arizona. I really wanted to go to Arizona. And I had a couple, I think I had Hill Air Force Base in Utah. And I don't know, I wanted to go out west. I was even happy going to Malmstrom and people were in there. It's a missile base. You know, the, I think missile bases, everything has its perks and its falls too. So I wanted to go out west and then I. Oh, great. <laughs> but I mean, I think anywhere it's what you make of it, and that's so true. I mean, is your day to day life significantly impacted by where you are? I mean, I'm in Minot, and most people, one of the worst, worst spaces, and my everyday life wouldn't be any different if I was back. So it's the little things that you choose either make or break it for you. No, for sure. For sure. Did you have any overseas bases? I did. I I wanted to go overseas more than anything, but you actually cannot be based overseas if you are foreign national. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So maybe maybe the next assignment. Fingers crossed. I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, and I'll throw another one in here. I do think Kadena Air Base is the best base in the air force that's just me that's just me in okinawa okinawa japan um it's and and then and the location too the location is just you're in the middle right in the middle of all the action you know if we read or if we're, we're familiar with the national defense strategy um you know we know who our enemies are right and they're mostly in that area right so they're very close to okinawa two hours from from China, two hours from Korea, two hours from, well, a little bit over two hours from, depending on where in Japan, from Russia. Um, so you're essentially right in the middle of, so the, you know that the planes that are leaving from Kadena are hitting those spots. Um, so anyway, so as far as the mission is concerned, they just have fighters there, they have, um, special operations there because they, they have more than just the wing right so there's the wing and then they have tenant units tenant units that are refueling units that are intel units that are um you know like i said special operations units and then on the island in okinawa there are also it's not just the air force right so there's also there's an army post there are i don't even know how many marine bases and navy bases so it's very joint and they have Naha, Naha Air Base, which is the uh, the Japanese self or air self defense force. You also do missions with so with the local Japanese. So it's just it's great as far as that. Um, and you're in it's an island. You're on the beach, and the weather is always great. <laughs> so that sounds like a great assignment. <laughs> yeah. so that to me is the best the best right. assignment in Europe. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit then about when the process for towards citizenship, 
and how early from your arrival in Minot did you start to work on that? Um, and yeah, just talk a little bit about that. So I'm a very, I'm a go-getter. Straight up, I'm absolutely a go-getter. The second I got to tech school, I went to our tech school leaders and I said, I want to start my citizenship. And it, it wasn't possible for me at that time. And then once I had left, it was possible. Pretty much the week I got to Minot, I started working on it um, and just came into a lot of issues that then just kept expanding the more research I did. And I realized that it's so much bigger than even what my problem personally is, but for what other people have too. So there's, there's different parts to the citizenship process. Obviously, there's filling out your application. And then you have an interview. You have to complete a test. Um, you take an English test and a civics test. And if you pass that, then you are able to be naturalized and you have a ceremony. And each step came with its own challenges. But I think most challenges for most people are in the application process. So it's different for military members than it is for civilians. There are different requirements and there are different ways to file it. And there's not a lot of guides online that explain how to do this. And if there are, they're probably outdated. So I was just stuck. Like, how, I don't even know how to answer this question. I had started filing online. You can't do that as a military member. It delayed me about two weeks because I thought there was a problem on the website. I couldn't press submit because military members can't file online. For some reason, you have to mail your application. So then I had to start all over again on paper in black ink, not blue ink. And there's just a lot of things that are very different, that there's not as much information out there as there should be. And there's many intricacies to forms and all that, as paralegals know all too well, forms can be a lot more difficult to fill out than they may seem. And it's especially situation dependent, you know, oh, the way that this question is worded, does this fit this specific situation that I have encountered? And that's when it's great. I have all the opportunities in the world having judge advocates right in my but then I would think about all the other airmen on my base and I don't know, military members in all branches that don't have that opportunity. I think I was probably in the best place to be and I still had a lot of problems. It still delayed me. It still was confusing and I had attorneys right at my fingertips. So fundamentally, there was just a lot wrong with the system. And the more research that I did into it, um, changes to naturalization law and to the systems have resulted in previous years. I think majorly in 2017 and 2018 in the rate of military members being denied at a higher rate than civilians for citizenship, which sounds crazy. That, that is the fire that started burning in my, in my soul because that infuriated me. So think about all the interviews and the process that I had to go through to even enlist. And then you're going to tell me that they're going to deny military members who have proved their character approved their devotion to the country at a higher rate than civilians. It didn't sit well with me. So I frantically started writing a package in a lot of passion. Um, <laughs> and then I had a lot of, um, I worked with my leadership a lot to make this the best that it could be. They were very, very helpful. 
Um, they were on board from the second I brought it to their attention and we perfected it essentially. And now it's even reached um, half levels. It's, I worked on um, edits to a new guide that after my interview was posted, someone at the Pentagon contacted me and wanted my review on the new guide that they were going to publish as a result of someone speaking up because they didn't know what was wrong, essentially. So there was a lot of, a lot of passion <laughs> involved. Well, yeah, no, and, and, and rightfully so. Um, and that's incredible that you were able to pinpoint those problems and then want to improve the process because you could have easily said, well, okay, I went through all of this. Um, it was painful, but I'm done with it. Um, I got my citizenship, so all is good. Um, but it definitely is admirable that, you know, you saw it at, okay, if, if someone like me, who should have all the, you know, it should be, well, has, is in a situation where perhaps application should have went as smooth as, you know, as it can be, and it wasn't, then imagine individuals who may have a more complicated situation that's going through the process, that's going to be delayed even more. Um, and sometimes I do see that, I, I see sometimes like technical sergeants or master sergeants who are finally getting their their citizenship. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know because I never really asked them about that subject in particular, but I did wonder like, how come it took them to be tech sergeants and master sergeants to get, to get citizenship? And I never really went into, you know, the, the details, and, but it was probably difficult and something that they have been working on for maybe, I don't know, close to a decade, if not a decade, longer than a decade. Right. Um, and so there are so many consequences for military members specifically to not getting citizenship. You can't re-enlist if you don't have your citizenship, which to me is a huge thing because if you sign a four-year contract, by the time you get to your first base and you're eligible to file and you start the process and you get kicked back and the application gets delayed and this and that and maybe you have an address change and your date to re-enlistment creeps up so quickly and you might not be re-enlist and that is such a waste of money on the Department of Defense's level if they lose an asset essentially but not only that, but you can't get security clearances. I mean, they're parts of our job that we can't even work in as foreign nationals if we don't have our secret clearance or top secret, mainly secret, but you can't be based overseas and you can't, again, access the full range that your job might be able to take you. So you're just significantly less valuable as assets to the DOD. So it's unfortunate that no one had picked it up on this sooner because it affects people's lives and on a professional level, absolutely, but also permanent personal level. It can cause family separation. Um, you can get deported as a veteran if you're not naturalized in time and you find yourself getting into civilian misconduct. On top of that, it, there are a lot of issues with dependents getting citizenship. And, you know, Air Force is big on family. And if you can't bring your family home from an overseas location, your wife or husband can't get naturalized and get stuck or sent back, it takes a toll on the service member too. Yeah, I know. All that affects yeah. national security, which is what we're all about. That's right, what we're all about. Yeah, so that's why it doesn't make sense that the system or the current process is what it is.
um so what were some some of the highlights of the suggestions maybe that you made um for the package so i had a i had a three-tier proposal it was um, improvement suggestions on the base level the air force level and then the dod level so at the base level my dot is actually starting citizenship workshops for active duty and dependents where judge advocates and a couple of paralegals are going to walk through the N-400 and N-426 forms, which are, the N-426 is for military members, but everyone files with the N-400. Go through it step-by-step, give the correct advice, tell people how to find the right resources, show them where they are, and then give people the opportunity to talk to JAGs about their own situations too. That's something we're doing at Minot. We're also looking at briefings at FTAC and ALS so that Airmen, as well as their supervisors, are trained on how to deal with problems that may arise with their citizenship. Um, and the one thing about Minot is we are significantly isolated. So the nearest USCIS application support center is 300 miles away in Fargo. So every time you need to get fingerprints or you need to get your photo taken, go for your interview or go for your nationalization ceremony, you're driving four and a half hours there. The distance geographically between that um, agency and the base creates a lot of distance in a theoretical sense too, because it's hard to contact people and it just makes everything a lot more complicated. So we would like to get a liaison on base in Minot that is from the USCIS. And that's something that ties into my DOD goal, which would be why not? Why can't we get that on all bases and all services? Because I know that the Department of State has traveling passport services. In Korea, they go around and provide passport services to service members. And there's no reason why there can't be either the temporary or permanent employment of LEAs. We could travel around and every couple of months just go and help service members with their applications, answer questions, provide that procedural clarity that has been missed when reading all these guides. And in terms of the Air Force level, um, the official guide was the only one that the Air Force had until literally last week. It's called the Total Force Citizenship Guide. Um, that was what I was referred to by in my process initially, and I was reading through it. It was, it was confusing. Um, it was unclear, and it was incorrect. They had an outdated naturalization law that was published after the law had changed, so that was needed to be addressed, and there are just things that, having done it, I think needed to be included. It was written by someone that hadn't done it before, and while I understand that, you know, this is why we provide feedback, so I was very fortunate to help change that. And also on the Air Force level, I think that one of the biggest things can be starting the process in tech school, and hopefully we're gonna get with some AETC command leaders hopefully to improve this process but if you start at tech school and you at least fill out the application it provides a large amount of information to a large amount of people at one time from one source it's a lot less branching off and letting people figure it out and come into confusion themselves so it just having briefings and having a chance for tech schools to sit down and fill it out, answer questions right at the site. Then when they get to their first base, perhaps mail it out then because then they wouldn't have to do a change of address application or all of that. It could be a very effective process, especially given that there are only 
a handful of AFSCs that foreign nationals can go into in the first place, which reduces the amount of tech schools. So that's that's one of the ideas we're floating around, but that's that was my proposal. Um, we're getting good traction, and I, I can't wait to see where it goes as well. Just even from now, this has really lit up in the last couple of weeks, and already improvement has happened. Wow, <clears throat> that's awesome. That's really awesome. And that essentially you got that, you know, that process started as well to make that, you know, department wide change into the pro process and help so many people that, you know, that, you know, that could have been in your position or in your position to try to figure things out on their own, only to find out that the information that they're getting may be useless. Um, to them at this point and just continue to figure things out on your own. Um, yes. Is there any talk, because I know in all the points that you mentioned, they're all tremendous initiatives. One thing that I'm thinking that worries me a little bit is the mailing situation, because any, 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 as far as, or any possibility to get service members to apply online and to get this process online, maybe so it can happen faster. That's definitely an idea, and I don't know why you have to mail your application, because one of the biggest things that I came into was I didn't know where to mail it. There are about five locations that you can mail it to. I, think, I believe the process used to be regionally dependent, but now there's, there's two addresses where you can send military applications. One is in Chicago, and one is in Nebraska. And one of them is specifically for expedited applications, which is technically part of the military's um, kind of segment of naturalization processes. And then one is for military as well. So you can send it to either or. I sent mine to Nebraska and I'm naturalized now. So, <laughs> I mean, I, that, was, that worked for me. But I know Chicago is another one and it's just confusing. So there just needs to be that clarity. One of the other things um, we've discussed is getting more training at JSON or for the attorneys and paralegals in general, because we're the legal professionals that people come with these problems too. And if we're confused ourselves, you know, we can't best serve them and come to see us. Right. Yeah, no, and that's definitely part of the legal assistance program, right? Yeah. One of the areas that we help with, um, with the airmen. So if we're better equipped to help them to have a more um, useful or to have more useful information to share with them, um, yeah, it's great, and that'd be awesome. But I'm I'm really curious about the on because I just don't know why they have the online process for civilians and not military. Just, I'm not sure. It's just that, crazy to me. That specificity. Yeah. Okay. Wow, wow, that's that's a lot. You know, it it sucks that I had to go through that process and that it was you found it to be what it was but i is definitely definitely commend you for doing what you're doing to try to make it better definitely speaks to your character and helping others um you know definitely glad that you you're, you're in the air force in the paralegal career field um that you know someone who fight for for others and, and try to make things better because that's all about you know we're, we're talking a lot um about innovation in the Air Force. That's one of the, that's one of the key things that we want from airmen. And uh, we want to look at processes and we want to make them better. 
and not accepting the answer of, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Challenge that because it can be it can just be better more efficient and like you said it affects national security like the quicker we can get this done knowing that it's been done right well we don't want to rush it either um but definitely make it a lot less painful than it is. at least start there and then make it more um you know easier to manage and navigate I mean, I filed in North Dakota, and I'm confident that probably any other state in the U.S. has more people filing for naturalization than in North Dakota. We don't have a lot of immigrants in North Dakota. There's not a lot of population. So my process still took six months, almost. Yeah, it was over six months, just over six months. And I'm filing in the least populated state with probably the least number of people needing that service. It still took that long. And I'm very, as I said before, I'm a go-getter. I am not kidding. I called that agency every single day and asked where my interview was. And they were so sick of me, but they eventually gave me a date. And I know not everyone has A, the time or like B, cares enough to be that aggressive with an agency. But this was such a big thing for me because I do what I want to do in my career unless I get my citizenship. So that was such a big motivator for me. And it still took six months. So I can't even imagine other people that don't have jags right at their fingers and don't have the opportunities that I had essentially and have more complicated cases in the first place. No, for sure. Yeah. And other people take longer to figure things out. It's just what it is, right? Sometimes or you send an email, then you wait. I sent an email and then you're waiting a month, two months, three months. You haven't heard anything. You know, what's the next step? Kind of stuck on that step unless someone tells you otherwise. Um, but not everyone has that initiative, right? To kind of know where to call, or at least find out where it is that you need to call, where it is that you need to send information to, um, to get those quick answers. So, um, yeah, so, so it can be, it, it took you six months, but it could take, you know, someone a lot longer than that. Yes, sir. And if you're not tracking that timeline, so you, if, it's not common knowledge that you need to get your citizenship before reenlistment. A lot of people don't know that. And one of the things that I had brought up is how quickly time goes when you're going through this process. My application never got kicked back, but I can imagine if you had some kind of discrepancy or they were confused on some section, it's going to significantly delay your application. And again, that if you sign four years, that date creeps up so quickly. But what AFPC did um, and this contact with the Pentagon, he facilitated um, AFPC to reach out to all foreign nationals in the Air Force as well as their supervisors to say, be aware that this is what you have to do. These are the requirements and also that there are consequences for getting a U.S. citizenship that you can only track. So not only are you dealing with U.S. nationalization law, but the nationalization law of every country that you may be coming from. Some countries don't allow you to be naturalized without having pre-approval. I renewed my South African citizenship before I got my American one. So now I'm a tri-citizen. I don't, to me, that sounds illegal, but like with, with my citizenships, that's not. Um, but every country is different. Some countries don't allow you to have dual citizenship and they may revoke your citizenship. And then perhaps you can't get back home if you need to. So that's an individual responsibility and you know, people don't even think about that so 
I'm glad that they were contacted directly from AFPC and you know the supervisors also too. No, for sure. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's a really good point and a lot of really good information on the process. I mean, even just to listen or, or watch this podcast, you kind of get a sense, you know, if someone was to be going through that process, you kind of get an understanding of all the little, you know, things that you have to think about that you have to do, you know, to, to, to eventually get to the naturalization process. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, yeah, no, that was, yeah. Thank you for all that information. Uh, thank you for sharing all that. Um, I'm, I'm sure it will help and I'm sure there's going to be changes that are going to help future airmen and perhaps future, you know, just members of the armed forces in general, whether it's sailors, Marines, uh, soldiers, and going through the process as well. So that's really good. Thank you, sir. Um, so just transitioning a little bit from that to, uh, to your paralegal duties. And yes, sir. So, so far being a paralegal, being a paralegal in Mina, uh, have you been to both civil law and military justice? I've only been in military justice. I started off in courts and now I'm mainly in NJPs, but um, I do still have a couple of courts. Well. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. It started with courts. Okay. So only military justice then. Um, yes. How do you like it so far? Minot is very, very busy, and I understand that every legal office is busy, and I think that's the nature of this career field. So it's, I think it's good to be busy, and I think you learn a lot. Um, military justice definitely keeps you on your toes, and there's a lot of things that you learn about the Air Force. I like the kind of broad perspective that this career field has because I've learned so many things about security forces and the missile world that we have that is a completely different world to everything else in the Air Force. Like, I don't, I don't even understand, like, how different it was until you really dive into it. So we get to see that. We get to see every career field and how they all function. And it's very good knowledge, I think, and kind of privileged to take that seat where you have, like, a bird's eye view of it all. And Yeah, I like it in that aspect. But Minot definitely has some fun cases on people Definitely get up to a lot of things here, but you know, I think that I'm learning great things because of that. In my next phase, I'll be prepared for a lot of the challenges that come to you because of the fast temper and the unique situations that we've dealt with here. On. Right. No, absolutely. I, I do see uh, Minot is constantly at the top of, you know, like the NJP numbers and the court martial numbers that's consistently year to year, year to year. And then you wonder like, how come? And you know, it's a big base. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Just consistently up there. Are you, you're not the only one doing NJPs, are you? Um, it's myself, uh, my sergeant and my captain. So okay. So about three, just three individuals. Yes, Cause it's about 150 a year. I want to say, um, typical it's, year it's quite high <laughs> it is right i mean it's not lackland levels but lackland i just saw their roster <laughs> they have like five people working 15 so <laughs> and they have a whole We're section jealous of that manning <laughs> that's right they have a whole section that is just njp and that's it i have an ncyc like four paralegals like two attorneys 
just NJPs. But then again, they're, they're I mean, they do about 300, so it kind of makes sense. Um, okay, with Lackland. And any any plan to to switch you over to civil law as of right now? I'm not I'm not sure yet. I would like to. Um I like I like civil law because you just deal with something completely different every day. You never know what's gonna kind of land up on your desk, but I'm not sure yet. And we have a lot of changeover in our office and so I think we're just trying to push through a couple of months of that first. So this summer, there's a lot of changeover, right? Like yes, some sir. people leaving and coming in, attorneys and paralegals. Yes, sir. Most of our um, leaders are changing over. Mm -hmm. And your loss just got there, though, right? Our loss, yep. Sergeant Stewart came in a couple of months ago. Sergeant Stewart. <clears throat> I know, because that, that um, I believe that position had been empty for a while. I mean, not empty per se. I know Sergeant, uh, the tech sergeant, who was like kind of like acting law. Holmes. Sergeant Holmes, yeah, yeah, he was doing a great job too. By the way, um, he did a great job. Yeah. He was because I'm in the so I'm Eighth Air Force as well. Um, here at Whiteman Air Force Base, and you know he's always in the emails and in the meetings, and so I I worked with him a little bit, but he was definitely holding his own, definitely holding his own. Absolutely. So he was doing a good job, and I'm sure Sergeant Stewart will do a great job as well. Uh, but it's not he's your already, typical, yeah, it's not your typical yeah, assignment. He's already killing it. We're having <laughs> a lot of good processes be implemented. So. Awesome. All good things. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And that's awesome then. But yeah, that's a beast, though. That's not an easy, you know, it's not an easy job to, especially as a loss. As an NCOIC of name the section. Um, Absolutely. As a brand new JAG, it's a challenge, right? Because you're going to be assigned a case right away. Right. You're gonna have a high workload right away. It's not like any other base that you would go to and perhaps have a lower caseload. This is you're thrown into the fire right away. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it's a challenge, but it's cool and it's good and it'll it'll make you better, right? Like you said, as soon, when you get to your next base, you know, get to your next assignment, you're gonna have all those things and different situations that you've seen that you've been exposed to that you're ready for whatever challenge um, the next Absolutely. assignment might bring. Yes, all right well i believe that's all i have for the podcast i want to thank you again um for one agreeing to to do this right to want to to talk about your story to want to talk about uh the citizenship and naturalization process to share that with um with our career field and and, and with air force overall so whoever watches this is going to be on youtube and it can be watched by anyone so um well, that's really good you know thank you for that thank you sir thank you for having me and thank you for reaching out i think the more people that kind of hear about this the word spreads and eventually it's their airmen or airmen themselves at the end of the day that will be more aware and how to help themselves and others through it if the information's out there yeah, no <clears throat> for sure for sure um it'd be good it'd be good and especially if those suggestions are implemented as well and if we continue to see more training and more information being shared at hopefully all installations um and they can begin the process as early as tech school like you said it'll it'll definitely make the whole thing a lot easier for for a lot of people yes sir absolutely all right well herman ramsey sorry i took so long of your time it's almost 7 p.m and 
I don't even know if the defect would. Do you have a a, ch uh, a chance to, to to eat dinner? I already got some food before, so. Oh. Um, but yeah. Because I know you're, you know, you're still on the meal card and don't want to interfere with <laughs> your opportunity to get some some dinner. So. Well, I thank you so much for this opportunity. I really, really do appreciate it. I think it's a great thing you're doing. These podcasts reach the world. So thank you for continuing that. That's right. No, of course. Of course. And, you know, in the future, if there's any other, any other topic that you'd like to, we will welcome you back to the podcast. And uh, sometimes I like to have panel discussions, so maybe have more people. I do a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, but sometimes they meet may have more and just discuss different topics uh, uh you know njp process or, or or innovation within the legal office that's one that i want to continue to have i'm big into that but yeah any any anything like that and and um just let me know and i'm, I'm the same number to air force and i know sergeant stewart is taking care of you but um uh, a white man so we're here as well if you ever need anything if you have any questions that sometimes we deal with very specific situations when it comes to court njp or anything like that we can help you out yes sir all right Emma ramsey thank you so much thank you sir thank all you. right have a good night all right you too all right, have a good night.